Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. We already knew the broad strokes, that Donald Trump spent over three hours holed up in the White House dining room watching Fox News, while the marauders he had summoned to Washington lay waste to the Capitol, ransacked the chambers of Congress, and violently assaulted law enforcement. Now, in its eighth hearing last week, the January 6th committee filled in many of the horrifying details. Lacking anything like the White House tapes that brought down Richard Nixon, the committee had to assemble kaleidoscopic details from dozens of sources, from DC cops in the presidential motorcade, to White House staffers, to outtakes in Trump's Rose Garden address. But they brought home a vivid and overwhelming minute-by-minute case that the former president was fully aware of the violence from its inception, in fact, a little before, and was resolutely immovable in the face of increasingly panicked entreaties from every corner to stop the mayhem and genuine physical terror he had unleashed. During the infamous 187 minutes, the leader of the free world resembled a spoiled child refusing to eat his vegetables, except it wasn't peas and carrots at issue, but the worst attack on U.S. government since the War of 1812. Even when addressing the next day, the country he had brought to the brink of ruin, Trump couldn't bring himself to say, the election is over just as to this day he can't bring himself to say that he lost. The hearing represents another giant step in the committee's efforts to grab the country by the lapels and make us remember always its visceral violence and existential danger. And while this had been the anticipated final act, the committee has received so much additional evidence that it now plans more hearings for the fall. This episode of Talking Feds is dedicated completely to an appraisal of last week's climactic hearing, and I feel really fortunate to be joined by three of the country's most knowledgeable and prominent commentators, all great friends of the podcast. And they are Norm Eisen, a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institute, the founder and chair of the United States Democracy Center and a legal analyst for CNN. He served as special counsel to the House Judiciary Committee for the first impeachment of President Trump. He also, in his distinguished career, has been the U.S. ambassador to the Czech Republic from 2011 to 2014, and he worked in the White House before that as special counsel and special assistant to the president for ethics and government reform. He's the author of three books, most recently, A Case for the American People, United States versus Donald J. Trump. Norm Eisen, thank you very much for joining us. Usually guests say something like, good to be here. <laughs> it's close. I was pouring out. I was pouring out my love for Harry and for all of you. And it's <laughs> Matt Miller. A partner at Via Novo and former director of the Office of Public Affairs for the Department of Justice. He's a justice and security analyst for MSNBC. He's written widely in many national publications. Matt worked in leadership positions in both the U.S. House and Senate. He served as communications director for the House Democratic Caucus, and he served for Senator Charles Schumer's staff at the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee. Thank you so much for joining, Matt. 
Great to be here, Harry. <laughs> and Juliet Kayyem, a national security analyst at CNN and the senior Belfer lecturer in international security at Harvard's Kennedy School, where she's faculty chair of the Homeland Security and Security and Global Health Projects. She served as President Obama's Assistant Secretary for Intergovernmental Affairs at the Department of Homeland Security. She's the author of the book Security Mom and, more recently, The Devil Never Sleeps, Learning to Live in an Age of Disaster. Thank you very much, Juliet, for being here. I am thrilled to be here. <laughs> there you have I mean, it strikes me, actually, this is a real harmonic confluence because you guys each have some different vantage points that really came up in the hearing. But let's get to it. So starting with a broader question, was this hearing more about sketching in the details on a picture we already knew or delivering new, presumably damning material about the former president? So I thought it was mostly the former. I thought it was a pretty compelling presentation, mostly of evidence we've already seen, which I think is a contrast with what some of the previous hearings have been. And I say that not as a criticism. Congressional investigations typically do two things. One, uncover facts. Two, lay those facts out for the public. And in a lot of the other hearings, we've seen bombshell pieces of evidence revealed by the members or revealed in the depositions they play or revealed by the witnesses that were there live. And there was some new evidence last night, but I thought mostly it was just stitching together for the public this very damning fact that the president knew the Capitol was being assaulted and he sat there for two hours and did nothing about it. A few little pieces of evidence that added to our picture, but mostly not new. I'll make a friendly amendment. While there were some familiar pieces, Matt, I looked at it through the lens, and this is how Harry and I first met each other like 30 years ago through the lens of a criminal defense lawyer and a trial lawyer. And to me, those outtakes were such dynamite evidence. I think that they had not just a quantitative impact on the evidence, but a qualitative one. And I'll tell you why. The missing piece, it's like uh, when you're building the jigsaw puzzle and that one piece goes off the dining room table and you're down on the rug looking for that missing piece. The missing piece in the picture is Trump's intent. And we heard about it from Cassidy Hutchison secondhand. I think that'll get around hearsay rules when there's a trial. We can talk about that. But this was Trump himself, the words that he spoke. I don't want to say the election is over, denying the illegality, but his gestures, pounding the podium, the facial expressions, the meanness of Trump. Boy, that is going to be devastating. And you're going to see that again and again, I predict, in the coming criminal prosecution. So a friendly amendment. I thought it was too long just as a narrative, mm -hmm. I mean, and I'm as interested as the next person. And I think that's important because obviously the audience isn't people who are going to hear it anyway. In some ways, I thought it could have been divided into two pieces that would have been much more effective. You had to work harder on this one in some ways. I thought what was really interesting to me and where I think they might have done better is juxtaposing what's happening up the street literally like a split screen with what's happening in the White House. That would have been helpful because at one stage they just sort of say, well, for three hours, there's no pictures, there's no emails, there's nothing. Keep saying that, right? Keep saying that because all this stuff is happening and it's feeding off of the silence. 
they know that Trump hasn't asked them to stop, right? And so you, we have to just constantly focus on the violence that was ensuing. And then the second piece is he's a sore loser and he's a freak. I mean, I'm of the school that I don't know what's going to happen legally and whatever. And I, I mean, I care, but I, I also think there's a second agenda here, which is we've got to minimize and isolate this violent extremism that is led by the president. And to the extent that we can show him a sore loser and, you know, he only comes out after it's clear that it's controlled and his babiness the next day. I'm a big fan of making him look like a loser. Like, you know, he's not Voldemort. That's my thing, that he's not Voldemort. He is touchable and he's minim minimizable. I just made that up. I want to jump in here on the split screen point because it goes back. There's no doubt, and we'll get to them, there were a few nuggets and the outtake maybe first of all of them. And we could even explore it more because he's so shaken and off his game. But to Matt's point, I got to say, we already knew this fact. He's in the dining room and the split screen might have brought it home because we know he's seeing things. But... I'm actually left with like, so what was he doing in the dining room? Is he like, yeah. you know, just looking? Is he indolent at the TV? Is he screaming, fulminating? Is he jubilant? I mean, it's very hard, of course, to portray in action. And that's a part of it. But at least that central piece, and without a doubt, all these yeah. peripheral satellite things are juicy. But I still don't know what exactly was going on where it most matters. And the few times that they did, they did it twice, juxtaposed the violence, because we know that's what he's watching on Fox. Holy shit, did you see that? And we know he's actually sitting in the dining room at the time. I thought one of the good juxtapositions was the way they did the new, and it was fresh and new. They do have that material for Congress, for PANS, for the Secret Service, the radio transmissions. Yeah. You know, we've got to get him out of here. And they're afraid for their life. And I thought that was very effective. And that, as many times as I've seen this, that really hammered home to me the 40 feet, how close they came, and juxtaposing with the Trump tweets and what Trump said and didn't say in the tweets. You're right. I mean, the trial lawyer in me is turned over in my brain how to better cut that. Like, the problem is they don't have the TikTok. So you had Cipollone saying, well, everybody was pleading, right? And you had Keith Kellogg and the others talking about what was going on. But you can't do it with a TikTok because they just don't. Trump is, that's part of the re He is Voldemort, Juliet. You know why? Yeah. Because he takes that, what is the thing that Voldemort does to survive? He like takes a little tiny Voldemort and puts it in the back of somebody's head. He, the guy is like, he's, he's so far, he's been completely indestructible. Anybody else would have been convicted and sent to five consecutive life sentences for all his crimes. That's ending. And that's why I thought those outtakes were important. Yeah. And some of the most important things that happened in the hearing weren't actually in the hearing. But I'll come back to that when we're done with what was in the hearing. I want to say something to Harry's point about not knowing exactly what was happening in the room. And it's something I still find frustrating, not really about the committee's investigation, but presumably about what the witnesses are able to share. So Pat Cipollone obviously was in the room for a while. We'll not talk about his conversations with the president. Completely inexcusable on his part. He knows better. 
He's hiding behind executive privilege. He knows that's not a legitimate claim of privilege. He knows there'd be no sanction against him if he just told the committee what he knows, and he should have. Mark Meadows defied the subpoena and won't come testify. But then you have other examples that I found puzzling. So you have Sarah Matthews, one of the star witnesses last night, saying Kayleigh McEnany came back from talking to the president to say he didn't want to talk about peaceful. Well, why didn't we hear Kayleigh McEnany's version of it? We know she testified. They showed clips of her. Yeah. Why didn't yeah. we hear what she said happened in that room? Is that because she pretended she didn't remember? Is it because she refused to answer? I'm a little struck that we still don't have accounts from people who were there, for the most part, who can speak to directly what he was doing. That was my frustration, too, in that they just said, and for three hours, blah, blah, blah. I was like, I th- I'm here for those three hours. <laughs> those three hours are why, why I'm watching. Yeah. There were people going in and out of the room. Yeah. And some of those people we know have talked to the committee. What did they say when they were asked? If anything, it seems to me plausible from the accounts that there were 12 words exchanged. And imagine how bizarre that is. Yeah. And he's just being petulant and like a child who won't eat his peas and carrots. And he's just sitting there and he doesn't seem to be engaged with anyone. And we know for a fact, he doesn't reach out to anyone in the government. It's not simply that he's not doing anything. There's no war room. There's no back and forth. He's not listening to anyone. He seems so isolated to me during that critical time. I mean, he's talking to Giuliani, that's for sure. And he's talking to, I mean, I thought this was interesting when he's talking to McCarthy. That to me is like one of the more chilling moments where McCarthy says, this is real. This is really scary. We could die. And Trump basically says, yeah, you know, maybe you should have more forcefully defended me. I think it's McCarthy. And you're like, oh my God, he is, he's going for the cliffs. Like this is, he is, you know, he is riding over that cliff. Revenge seems to drive him more than power there. Yeah. I guess they're more upset than you are. But to Matt's point, it was a little bit like a summation. Yeah. Those pieces of it, there was some new stuff, the outtakes, enough to keep us going. But, you know, they were pulling it all together. You can't argue with the method Tell them what you're going to tell them. Tell them, tell them what you told them. And you can't argue with the effect that they're having because the polling numbers now are really starting to be dramatic. The ratings, the impact, the effect on independents. I saw a poll, 20% of Republicans think the guy should be prosecuted. So there is a method to what they're doing. And then there was enough freshness to keep me interested. You only get one John Dean. You only get one Cassidy Hutchinson. And so, you know, it's tough to replicate that. But in some ways, I thought she was the best witness on video. I was more moved by her when she said it's un-American, it's unpatriotic, it's heinous, it's awful. She had just such a passionate, powerful litany, which is how we all felt when we saw that. I mean, that 224 Pence tweet was delivered with murderous intent. Yeah, yeah. Completely after he knows, right? And also, right, he had set it up at the actual rally because he already knew by then that he wasn't going to do it. And instead, he made it as a sort of revelation. But I do think Cassidy Hutchinson, everyone who's with him at the end, you know, Giuliani comes out paradigmatically here. 
really does seem kind of sick. Yeah. Kind of like a weird, sick word. And Cassidy Hutchinson not, and Sarah Matthews just seem like they're speaking for normal, Republican, by the way, but just actual thoughtful citizens. And that mm-hmm. team normal, team crazy thing is really, I think, yeah. giving them a lot of mileage. I think what you're looking for, Harry, is people with a conscience, yeah. right? I mean, that yeah. was clear in, in Sarah Matthews talking about with other people in the press office there, not reporters, but press staffers who didn't want to put out a statement because it would give a win to the media. What are you talking about? The Capitol is being attacked. Only someone who has lost all perspective and has no conscience would say something like that rather than just doing the right thing. Right. And I thought the juxtaposition between Sarah Matthews and Pottinger was interesting. I thought he came off as sort of a less helpful witness than I had anticipated. Yeah, more bureaucratic. And used every opportunity to sort of both sides some of these issues. I thought that she had a simmering rage, which I loved. Like, I mean, it was definitely, she was pissed in some of those answers, which, you know, to match to your point, exactly. It is like, what is going on here? I've been with this guy forever, right? You can't be, you know, truer believer and I've been, and what's going on here. And I think then at the end, and this is a part in the commentary a lot of people aren't picking up on or not addressing as much is, is Liz Cheney's sort of ode to these women. Mm, Yes. One after the other, whether it's the Georgia voting workers or Hutchinson or Sarah yesterday is this is who's bringing Trump down or at least taking some of the oxygen out. And I I was glad that she had done that. Yeah, she subtly played a sort of suburban women card, Yeah, maybe with Holly as well. We'll get to that. But they're looking a little bit at the broader political landscape. They chose the theme. I, I want to ask you guys what you thought about, you know, again and again, we heard dereliction of duty. And that struck me as like, it's got to be more serious than dereliction of duty. If everything had happened and he had nothing to do with it and people are marching, it, it, it would be his duty to have quelled it. But I mean, it's much more monstrous than that because he's the guy who actually strikes the match, then the gasoline, etc. I'm thinking about this from a prosecutor's point of view, how I met Norm 30 years ago, but like that dereliction of duty in action as opposed to the moving force, I thought was an interesting choice that they could have, you know, been more aggressive about. It's the audience. You know, they've got us they're trying to talk to people who care about duty. They're trying to talk to independents. They're trying to talk to people who've served in the military. They want to hit women. They want to hit white men. You know, they're choosing their very shrewdly for their larger purposes. So maybe I'm being too generous, but I thought it was effective for those target audiences. Okay, so what do we think he's doing when he's talking to Giuliani and the senators? Giuliani, when he makes the calls that night, doesn't even mention the riot. And why don't we know more about the calls to the senators, by the way? We seem only to know about that one Tuberville. Do you think, Norm, you might have a sense of this, right? Is that going to come out? My theory on all of the congressional touches, this comes to the point I wanted to make, is that they have decided to, in a nonpartisan, high-class way, to wade into the political season. Yeah. The place where you really saw it was with Hawley. I was on with our friend Dan Goldman this morning, and Goldman says, well, that was just gratuitous. No, it wasn't gratuitous. Mm -hmm. I think it was very calculated. 
They're going to have hearings in September. When Labor Day ends in a midterm year, all four of us know that's the high political season, okay? And those pointed remarks at the end by Kinzinger and, and Cheney that it's still going on, the one remedy for that really is, I mean, I wrote for the Times, the cable box, they got to talk to the American people, the jury box, they got to queue up evidence for the prosecutors, and the ballot box. And having a nonpartisan referendum, do you want this shit or do you want democracy? That's the choice they've made. That's why Tuberville, Holly, all of these House members, that's the reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought it was um, gratuitous, but justified. Yeah, <laughs> I, Look, they've had a lot of gratuitous shots. The first hearing, they took a, a really nasty shot at Jared. Just a slide, like little, little drive-by hits on people. They've done some at McCarthy being scared. Yeah, In every case, justified, however, um, justified by the facts. I do think Norm makes a good point that I would take even beyond what he says in, in terms of talking to the public. Liz Cheney's speech tonight struck me as different in tone and different intended audience in her previous speeches when before she's tended to end these hearings to one, release a new piece of evidence, right. a little bombshell, like an, a little amuse-bouche to keep you coming <laughs> back for the next course. And two, to really try to connect Trump's actions to a criminal statute, right? She tried to put pressure on the Justice Department. Last night really felt like talking to voters. It felt to me like the announcement speech of a Cheney 2024 presidential campaign, not one that she thinks will be successful, but one that she might run sort of as a kamikaze mission right into the heart of Donald Trump to disqualify him with general election voters that will see her going around the country in the primary, beating him up with using the exact same theme she laid out last night. Yeah. So it really did strike me as a different presentation in kind from the two Republicans on the panel, Cheney and Kinzinger. Right. You're talking about her ending. I thought her opening was really interesting. She says the dam is beginning to break, essentially. I forget her exact language, but the cracks are solidifying. The MAGA is not holding, essentially. And I think that's very consistent also with a theme that we're moving on. Trump has had his best days. His worst days are ahead of him. You won't be the first one off this ship, but you don't want to be the last. We're giving you an off-ramp. And it was both a description, which I think is right. I think like what Norm was saying, if you look at the metrics, that is absolutely right. And it was a threat. I think it was a little bit of a threat that if you're going to continue this You don't know what more is coming, and it may just be whoever else is testifying, which they're always hinting about. You know, they say we can't be done because because more people are coming forward. So I think you're right. I think it was more political, more threatening in a way that the others had been more tied to a sort of legal strategy. Can I ask a question as an old friend of the host? What happens to all of this if she loses like, what does it feel like yeah. when she comes back there having lost? You know, that is the most unforgivable sin in American politics, losing. Were they laying the groundwork for that? Is she going to open in September by saying, I'm proud that I fought for what I believed in, and I want to ask every American irrespective, will you do the same? Only you can stop this. I think of it as a continuation of the insurrection, a metastasization of the insurrection. You know, the sequel is always worse than the original, and they're limbering up for it. I don't have an answer to that. Like, 
Are they thinking about that? What it's going to be like? She's certainly going to lose. And I'm quite certain she knows she's going to lose. And I assume she'll portray that as, you know, she was willing to sacrifice this seat to do what was right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And if she was willing to make that sacrifice, where are the rest of you? Yeah. Who don't even have to make sacrifice? Pat Cipollone, it's not even a sacrifice for you to come forward and talk. You can tell I'm annoyed by him. Sorry. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's funny. They made a deal. In general, they just haven't had real muscle and they've made all kinds of half measures to get what they could. And that's part of the reason I think the focus goes down the street so much to the DOJ. It's Congress. That's what they do. They cut deals. They convicted Steve Bannon. The tough line that they took with Bannon and with Navarro, now they flopped with Meadows and Scavino, but the tough line that they took really, that's why they got a thousand people to testify. They got what they needed from Cipollone. And they really have loaded up the evidence for Fonnie Willis in Georgia. My God, it would have taken her a thousand years to like <laughs> go inside the Oval Office at that DOJ meeting or get those outtakes or get the testimony. Who would have thought to ask Romney McDaniel? Did Trump tell you to suborn false electors? The vast net they've cast. So I think they've shown the right amount of muscle, Harry. You haven't worked up there and tried to enforce these effing subpoenas. No, no, but I'm saying that's the thing. But yeah, they've been deaf. They did Trump v. Thompson on a rocket docket. I had been gone from the House for a year by the time we got a resolution in the McGahn litigation. On that point, you know, we are talking an hour after Bannon, the verdict came down relatively easy. But I mean, we shouldn't forget one that is a January 6th. I mean, it's not just it's not about Bannon. It's about the enforceability of of this committee. Yes. But I also think once again, I look at each of these pieces as what story is it telling about violence and violent insurrection and its capacity to organize, to get money, to plan, to direct, all the things that you worry about, about violent extremism or domestic terrorism. And in that case, once again, this is a win. Here's a guy who on January 5th, in a very popular podcast that he hosts, basically says, I know what's about to happen. And now he's criminally indicted. And we can parse all the legal parts about whether he's going to go to jail and for how long and he's going to appeal and blah, 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 blah. And they didn't get this person. But, you know, I'm going to take a win, not just in the legal sense, but also I think that in this overall sort of addressing the violent extremism. People always say, well, you know, but then there's dissent. You know, look, I I get it in terms of what our country is like right now, but this form of violence doesn't go away if Trump is strong. And so anything you can do to make him both be or seem weaker is success in my mind. So kudos to Twitter. This is really what you're saying, but it's also partakes of the politics. I think that it was intentional to kind of take it to to show both McConnell and McCarthy and how they were initially. And what do they do now? There's this ongoing debate how much the Dems should focus on this. But I, I was trying to think from their point of view what they can possibly say. And did you notice that the Republicans in Congress, whatever their consortium is, put out a nasty tweet about the witness, and then they withdrew it. Yeah. Yeah. 
they're in a real fix for trying to engage on this at all. Juliet is speaking to it with the Sarah Matthews rage. Yeah. But I think they have pissed off the women of America. And watch out. Yeah. And, you know, it's the cocktail. It's not just the democracy, the continuing DVE that Juliet specializes in, the domestic violent extremism. By the way, it's a huge gain for our country that what's the current count, Juliet? A thousand of these people? Yeah, I know. I, I, I'm exactly. Those are wins. I'm taking the wins. A thousand wins. But they've, they've gotten people angry. The democracy issues, the cocktail, democracy, abortion, guns. That, again, brings us to this turbocharged. I hope the Democrats are able to take advantage of it. This turbocharged political atmosphere that can counter the red tsunami that was expected. So those are wins. And they're really, they're going to go whole hog. That's why they're coming back in September. They're going whole hog. It's some risk, right? I mean, this was all, we had a trajectory that was pretty much set. Talk about your trial lawyer's mindset. This was going to be the end. They are coming back. They will have some good stuff, but will it be, oh, this again, you know, or not? All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thanks, Harry. In today's spirited debate, the topic of seltzers bubbles up as we aim to address whether seltzers are friend or fad. Maybe you remember your first delicious dance with Zima back in the day. But for a lot of us, our first seltzer encounter happened poolside or at the beach a few years ago when White Claw opened the fizzy floodgates, creating a surge of seltzers to hit the market. Now, it seems like every week, five new fruity flavors enter the scene, from the smallest of independent labels to the biggest of brands. Take Anheuser-Busch, for instance, who pumped a billion dollars into their seltzer game this year, proving that seltzers are here to stay. And what's not to like about that? They're fun and exciting. They're light, crisp, and refreshing. They're lower in calories and carbs, which makes them less filling and easy to drink. So for now, we say let your seltzer flavor flag fly and stock up for the summer because this is one fizzy fad that shows no signs of fizzling out. So pick up a few of the newest flavors at your local Total Wine & More. Thanks to our friends at Total Wine & More for today's A Spirited Debate. So... I think we're we're actually on fairly similar ground, both on the presentation and maybe the political impact. Let's zero in on a few of the details. Who, for you, of the whole cast of characters, came out decidedly better or worse after yesterday? All the focus was on Trump, but who that isn't Donald Trump was looking like a different character? I think... We're in the middle of a massive Secret Service scandal, which I think we're just touching the the tip of it. Right. But I, in terms of better, worse, I was much more sympathetic to the circumstances that the Secret Service found themselves in because of Trump. I'm not forgiving them, but I think the untenable position that they were put in, knowing the crowd is being promoted by Trump, trying to protect the vice president. I thought that was a wrinkle that made me slightly more sympathetic. And I think just the overall is, to Matt's point about 
Cheney's sort of last statements about he can't be president again, essentially, is the extent to which Trump put lots of agencies, lots of people in untenable positions. And we can sit here and say, why weren't there more heroes? But let's not forget they're put in that position because of his autocratic agenda. Yeah, I will say, I think Eric Hirschman has come out of this process looking better. You know, one of the the lawyers who defended Trump in the first impeachment. And I know all the lawyers always like to say you shouldn't judge. Everyone deserves representation. You can't judge lawyers by their clients. And I agree with that in a criminal context. Impeachment is not that. Mm -hmm. I think you can judge people who chose to defend Donald Trump in that context and chose to make disingenuous arguments. And I, I thought it was pretty deplorable how he acted in impeachment one. But he's shown himself to be, in this case, he stood up and did the right thing. And then like some of the other lawyers in the building, has been willing to come forward and testify 100% candidly about what he saw. So he deserves real credit for that. Yeah. In measuring this, I was impressed again with Pence. If you had a Spiro Agnew type in there, I don't know what January 2021 would have looked like in this country. Probably massive color revolution style civil disobedience. So Pence was, you couldn't have asked more. Staying in the building, refusing to be whisked away, calling the Pentagon, resisting Trump's blandishments, of course, doing the right thing. But he has not come forward to testify. Can you imagine what that hearing would be like? Yeah. (laughs) By the way, do you have a take? Why didn't he want to go with the Secret Service? Do you think it really is? He thought they were... Yeah, he didn't know where they were going to take him. He was staying there. And you know, we're getting to this now. Oh, now we come to the things. One of them was the politics, the September hearing. The other is the witness tampering and obstruction of justice scandal that is unfurling at the Secret Service. Yeah. All of us are experienced DC hands. We know the whiff of napalm. Yeah. When it's in the air, a lot more bad shit is going to go down. And Pence knew that, right? They all knew the Secret Service was too close to Trump. He co-opted Ornato. That was the Jim Messina job when I was in the White House, the ultimate political job, that that would go to a Secret Service agent? Yeah. I think that they were at least complicit in Trump's good cop, bad cop, witness tampering routine like that he used on Michael Cohen and Mueller, and he did it again to Cassidy Hutchison, and they collaborated. And then, lo and behold, it turns out that they effectively did not preserve documents they were ordered to preserve. They passively destroyed documents. It's kind of like the dereliction of duty. When the building's burning down, doing nothing is the same as lighting it on fire. So that is the other big thing. They're going to have a live scandal on their hands, or not own angle, and the driver of that car got criminal defense lawyers reportedly. Right. And they parsed that out step by step over the night. So they had a little afterburner to drive post-hearing news. Yeah. That was very skillful too. No, I agree with that. And I actually, again, thinking of this as a prosecutor, when I try to think, okay, what could the department, if they were trying to be as aggressive as they can, and you'd think about the moves they'll make Let's say Cipollone, enough of Cipollone, put him in the grand jury. But he'll immediately litigate, and I don't think the courts will give it back of their hand. So we're talking about a year, and now we really are in the shadow of the election. 
and likewise charging different people. But this obstruction thing, if they have a clean obstruction case against Meadows or anybody in the circle, that's the kind of thing they could bring tomorrow and could kind of crack things open. Right. And then you have the state fake electors cases or case that adds to the different strategies. They had a state strategy, they had the court strategy, they had the violent strategy. And that I've been calling the opening scene of Jaws part (laughs) of this entire sort of takedown, if it gets to that, which is, it was slow, you heard about it in January, what's going on? And now it looks like the the killer. This is a whole different topic, and I, I have continue to defend the good faith and professionalism, et cetera, of the DOJ. You know, Andrew Weissman with a different investigative approach, I think is worth talking about. I just want to say, though, that I don't think it matters if Trump announces candidacy tomorrow, but it does matter if it's the end of 2023. That really does change the dynamic. I'm sure for Garland also. Look what happened to Cyrus Vance. He thought it would, uh, you know, definitely be his baby and things got tied up in the courts and next thing you knew, he was gone. All right. So my sense is that it was a very, you know, ballyhooed, much anticipated hearing and a hard one to completely bring home minute by minute. But the basic advance was nevertheless strong. I just wanted to ask if there were any sort of particular little kernels or details as they reflected on Trump or other witnesses that you really noticed and focused on a broader meaning or it seemed like a bigger import. The White House security official whose testimony was shown anonymously, where they disguised his voice and and hid his face, Mm -hmm. who offered the testimony about agents calling their loved ones, afraid they couldn't get out of the building, and a number of other things. I was very curious why that person needed anonymity, and that this is not a judgment on the committee. I believe if they made the judgment in good faith that he did. That was someone who clearly was on the service's radio transmissions. If you listen to some of the terminology he used, it sounded to me like a Secret Service agent. And I can't figure out why a Secret Service agent would need to remain anonymous for this testimony. It's not someone that's going to do undercover drug operations uh, (laughs) when, when they rotate out of the presidential protection detail. And so I hope it's not because the culture at the service would frown upon someone sharing this kind of information with Congress, but I don't know. And that testimony struck me as the kind of testimony that didn't need to be anonymous And so uh, it made me a little worried that the committee felt they needed to extend that protection to him. My vignette or or the the things that we're going to forget because there's so much stuff is the Miley stuff. The Joint Chiefs comes in at various moments on interviews. And I've been very, very torn about him. I think I was probably somewhat unfair to him. And another one of my people are put in untenable positions and and he, he probably was trying to do the right thing through very difficult circumstances in the last years of the Trump administration. But I thought something not to forget out of that was the extent to which Trump's craziness required people to violate all sorts of norms, including our constitutional military chain of command. The vice president does not have a role in it. There's a reason for that, but it's because if the vice president and president are at odds, you don't want the vice president to stop something. 
And so it should have gone from the Joint Chiefs to the Secretary of Defense, where is he in this, and then to the president. And I thought Miley's phone call with Pence may not make the headlines. I think in military schools and military training, it probably will. For me, in addition to Trump being forced to testify as a witness against himself in those outtakes, which I keep coming back, they just... They're gold. I would use them constantly if I were trying this case, and I think we'll see them again. For me, I liked Sergeant Mark Robinson, the MPD officer, because, you know, there's a flap about exactly what Cassidy Hutchison was told by Ornato as Engel stood by. Personally, I believe Cassidy Hutchison. I mean, why would she lie about that? A bunch of other people have said that Ornato lied about their testimony, and the guy was so close to Trump. So, okay, there's a debate about it, but the real issue is, did Trump fight to go with a mob he knew was armed to the Capitol? And we had another anonymous snippet saying, if Trump had done that, I don't know if you want to call it a riot or an insurrection, but that would have crossed the line the moment that he did that. And he must have had it... In his fantasy world, right? He wanted to do it so bad, and he actually envisioned, right? He's going to storm on Congress as the president with these, like, revenge fantasies. It's weird. I had never thought about this before, but in some ways, January 6th was the final indignity of Donald Trump for all the damage and harm and the lives, the five lives that were lost as a result of the insurrection. Donald Trump came to the White House, you know, I fought the law and the law won. He came fighting and he was in a very fundamental way defeated again and again and again. He could not bend the bureaucracy to his will. And this was one last time that our structures, our checks and balances, the bipartisan officials, the staff, even his loyalists, Bobby Engel, his lead Secret Service agent said, no, there's no dispute about that. No, you can't go to the Capitol. And no wonder he was like a frustrated, petulant child. He could not get his way. That is, I'm sure, how Donald Trump sees his time in office. And he's thinking, if I get back, that's what this new, these outside groups are doing now, the administration in waiting. If I get back, that's not going to happen again. Yeah. And that's something we should all be scared about. And that's why the committee is coming back in September to make the midterms a referendum. Democracy or Trumpery? One of the things that was so compelling to me about the outtakes, I think it's the really the only time we've just seen them as the people around them saw them completely unstable, petulant, but also lacking. I've been on the Juliet plan for a couple months of, you know, loser any way you look at it. And that's who he was. He was shaken up. He couldn't say the words. He was overwrought. And we've all come back to this notion of he was like, you know, an eight-year-old, just a petulant eight-year-old leader of the free world. So I mentioned that little snippet about Cipollone saying Meadows overall. Meadows has struck me over the course of such a yes man, really like the poster child for the terrible chief of staff, exactly what a chief of staff shouldn't be. Going back to last hearing that that caucus happened 
at all on the, was it the 18th of December, where Sidney Powell and others just wander into the, the Oval Office for an unscheduled meeting. That's like the job definition of a chief of staff. And I, I wonder how history will treat him. Something that struck me that I hadn't heard before was when he gave that mind-blowing Rose Garden speech, but we did learn in the hearing that he extemporized it and just didn't do the speech. But when he finally closed down, he talked about, go home, this is what happens to, you know, people who have been badly treated for so long, yeah. from great patriots who've been badly and unfairly treated for so long. In other words, I think he went to the only card he sort of has ever had the grievance. So it wasn't just about the six. This is where he was starting in 2015, 2016. I recognize you and how liberal elite America has been ignoring you and demeaning you, et cetera. And it's been going on and on and on. He was left with his only weapon. And that's all the guy is. Okay. So see you in September, I guess. What is the committee do they stay active between now and then? It doesn't seem like they have such a huge step. We don't really know how many more hearings, when the summation is, how much they get to the midterms, et cetera, right? Nobody knows. Not even the committee knows. Right. But like this Secret Service investigation, if there are dynamite developments or these guys come in and take the Fifth Amendment or one flips or the IG find stuff, you know, they'll lay on another hearing like the yeah. Cassidy Hutchison hearing. They've found their way now and they're going to keep going until they can't go anymore. Yep. That's a good thing for the country. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if we get notice that they're going to have another public hearing before. Well, I guess they have nothing on the calendar, but sooner rather than later. Now that is a prediction, predicting members of Congress in Washington in August. I know. <laughs> exactly. The staffers will be there, the Norms and Barry Burks in there. But what a, what a competent crew they are. Yeah. But yeah, look, I mean, we started at a place even beyond where we focus a lot now on DOJ, et cetera, but we started in a place where we didn't have anything approaching a historical chronicle of one of the most important episodes. And DOJ is not going to provide that. So yep, God bless the committee for having it for now and the future. We are out of time. Thank you very much to Juliet, Norm, and Matt and thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can now subscribe to us on YouTube, where we are posting full episodes, talking books, one-on-one -on -one discussions with authors, and bonus video content. We're available on the Spectrum News app, which provides local stories, weather, and information that matter to you and your community. Download the Spectrum News app on your Apple or Android device. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. And you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post bonus discussions with national experts about special topics exclusively for supporters. Just in the last few days, we posted a conversation with the youngest New York Times columnist ever, Bianca Vivian Brooks, about how the Dobbs decision is landing with millennial women. Submit your questions to 
talkingfeds.com slash contact. Whether it's for Talking 5 or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry. As long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Olivia Henriksen. Sound engineering by Matt McArdle. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers, and Adam Macias is our consulting producer. Production assistance by Laura Feldner, Kalanitano, and Emma Maynard. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Dolito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later. Thank you.